Welcome to Med Practice Made Perfect, brought to you by Practice First Medical Management Solutions. My name is Tom Mahar, and I'll be your host. Today we have two special guests. We have our coding managers, Kelly Cole and Vidya Baliga, who have been with us for, geez, 2014, I think it's been. So it's been about nine years. Uh, they are both certified coders and certified auditors through AAPC. And uh, welcome, guys. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we appreciate, uh, we appreciate you guys joining us today. You know, I'll give you a little bit of a uh, brief history as to, you know, what's kind of transpired over the last 20, 25 years, whatever it's been since uh, we've gone to an electronic health record. Maybe it's not quite that long. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, the last time uh, before 2021 that the evaluation and management guidelines were updated was 1997. So there was the 1995 and the 1997 uh, evaluation and management guidelines. So generally, um, and, and this is uh, a little bit, a little bit of a generalization, but the 95 guidelines were uh, basically used by uh, non-specialists and the 1997 guidelines were typically used by specialists. That's typically the, the way that it worked out to be the most uh, fair code, if you will. So, you know, now, it, you know, we went, whatever it's been, 23 years since, a, since, a, uh, since an update, and um, there's really been a lot of changes. So the way things uh, were designed before is there were, uh, the codes were devised based upon the three sections of history, the section of exam, and then the section on medical decision making. So, you know, what's basically happened over time is, is when the electronic medical records came out initially, what they did was uh, they created a bunch of checkboxes. So within the history and the three sections of history in the exam, the clinicians were performing their, their exam on the patient, checking a bunch of boxes. Um, same thing within the MDM section. And, uh, you know, they were creating a recommended code, if you will, as to what this should code out as. So um, that, you know, generally was, you know, was a guide. It was an aid, you know, to, to a coder. Um, there was, you know, all kinds of um, issues within, you know, conflicting information that you could get within, uh, within a history section or were the same thing was used. Uh, within two different sections of history. So you'd be double counting elements and that sort of a thing. You know, as time has, uh, you know, gone on, you know, the general idea was, is the government was um, incentivizing practices and paying practices, you know, to implement electronic health records. So uh, that happened maybe, I don't know, maybe it was four or five, six years ago. Maybe it's been longer to try to get everybody on electronic health records. So, I mean, the theory was, I mean, the government thought that the theory was, well, if everybody's health record is electronic, it'll be easy to share and so forth. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out that well is in that there were hundreds of electronic health record systems and none of them spoke to each other for the most part. So um, that was a little bit problematic. And, and, but, you know, the good part was, is that, you know, all these paper records, a lot of them went away and we ended up with an elect at least an electronic record. The funny thing that happened, though, when with all this box checking and, and so forth and 
what ended up happening is, is there, you know, there's always been a, you know, a, a bell curve on your E&M distribution, you know, from, you know, the lowest level, level one to a highest level, level five. And within that, you know, that, that bell chart, a lot of the stuff fell towards, you know, towards the middle. So one of the phenomena that happened, you know, when we, uh, when everyone started using electronic health records is all of a sudden the acuity, the whole bell curve shifted to the right towards, you know, higher acuity. So, uh, you know, so the government got annoyed, obviously they've already paid everyone to, uh, you know, implement the, the electronic health records. And now they're paying more money out because, you know, all of a sudden just from, you know, a simple, you know, simple documentation and coding tool, um, it's generating higher level codes. So, you know, the government kind of stepped in and then looked at uh, government payers and started looking at, along with regular commercial payers, started looking at, um, you know, the actual leveling of these charts. And there was, you know, quite a few more audits that occurred and so forth to discourage this you know, quote unquote, overcoding. So that's kind of the backstory. And then, you know, what's happened, you know, since is uh, January 1st, 21, uh, you know, for a good portion of uh, medical providers, the 2021 evaluation of management coding guidelines came out. And and really, the, really for the rest of the providers that, that came through, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, was it it started January 1st, 22, and then the rest of them that rolled out January 1st, 23? No, the first one was 2021, and the next one was 2023. Okay, okay, great. Um, so what's, you know, so what's transpired here, the big change, I should probably say it, is that the history in the exam no longer became relevant as far as, you know, a use for coding. They really wanted the provider to focus on documenting, you know, number one, the medical necessity of the visit. And then number two, they wanted them to, you know, what are they thinking about in the medical decision-making section? What did they consider to make their final, you know, analysis and diagnosis of, of, of the encounter? So concerning the 2021 guidelines, uh, it's basically we're, you know, we're focused on the medical decision-making. So within the medical decision-making now is the major part of the chart. And really uh, what we're considering along with medical necessity, that in medical decision-making, medical necessity, we're considering to score the encounter from a, you know, from a, a level of service situation. The history and exam, uh, you know, they're still being reviewed by coders. Uh, you, you know, they're all sometimes looking for conflicting statements in there, that sort of a thing. Um, it's, but it's not, uh, it's not used, I, I believe, in consideration of what the final correct. code is that yes, we're looking that's at. Correct. So, okay. So, uh, you know, so generally, uh, you know, Vijan, Kelly, if you guys can speak to, um, you know, a little bit about, uh, you know, the E&M scoring tools in general and, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, how this works within an EHR. Sure, I can, I can start. Um, according to the E&M guidelines, there are four different types of medical decision making. So you have straightforward, low, moderate, and finally, the high level. And medical decision making, or what we'll refer to as MDM, 
is defined by three elements and organized into what is referred to as the MDM table. So an EHR scoring algorithm um, would be based on the three different columns or three different elements, let's say, in the MDM table. So without going into the specifics of how to code or the requirements for each of the columns of the MDM table, I would note that the three columns are the number and complexity of problems addressed, so the issues the patient walks in the door with, the amount and or complexity of data to be reviewed and analyzed. That would be the ordering of tests um, if the provider spoke to another provider outside of their practice. Also, if another, an independent historian maybe in the, in the case of a child or something along those lines was used um, to gather history information. There are all data points that can be given for these things. And any diagnostics ordered also would count there. And then the third column would be the risks of complications and or morbidity or mortality of patient management. So any EHR, ENM scoring algorithm would need to look at all three of these columns, take them into consideration in order to calculate an overall ENM level. Okay, so that was a that was a great summary, Kelly. Um, in, in your folks' experience with EHRs, you know, how does the algorithm work? Mm, I can take this one. <laughs> um, typically, for the algorithm to work, there would be boxes to check. So a provider or a user would have to check on the appropriate boxes for the EHR to generate an ENM code. So let's just walk through an example. A child comes in with a sore throat and is diagnosed with pharyngitis. So now the provider would click on a box that says it's an acute, uncomplicated illness in the first column. Then moving on, he, the provider probably ordered a strep throat and also used like the parent provided history um, in addition to the child providing the history. So the provider would have to click a, in the data column. They would have to give credit for the test ordered and also give credit for the independent historian. And then finally, in the risk column, the provider would have to assign a risk to the condition. So in all, the algorithm would contain, like basically consider all three columns to come up with an ENM final code. That's, uh, uh, that, that sounds fairly complicated. I, you know, I, I can see, I can see based upon your example of um, just certain things happening, you know, if you go, you know, if a parent goes in with a child, you, you know, they may, you know, the, the provider may have, uh, you know, may, may write down, you know, history obtained from, uh, you know, from parent, from mother or whatever. And, you know, then they forget to check the box. Absolutely. That's what it was. Absolutely. So if you forget to check the box, that, of course, is the problem where you're not getting credit for that element. Okay. All right. That makes uh that makes a lot of sense. So I, I, uh, I, I guess the next question that comes up is, is that, you know, I think a lot of the ways that, uh, you know, the software companies are selling these packages is, uh, you, you know, the, the kind of the same way they sold medical billing packages, you know, and they, you know, look at if you implement this package, it's going to do everything for you. It's the same kind of thing on the, on the health record, you know, the electronic health record, you know, if we, you know, we've got algorithms built, it's going to select the code, you know, in the issue is, um, 
And, you know, as you guys, you know, pointed out is, you know, the problem is, is these check boxes. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about, you know, what, why do we, why do we still need a coder? I mean, if these algorithms are figuring things out, we talked about a couple, you know, pitfalls, but, you know, why do, why do we need, why do we need a coder anymore? Um, I would say, first of all, there are several reasons, but it it's important to remember that even with the new E&M guidelines, one thing remained the same. The medical necessity of the visit still remains the overarching criteria for leveling a service. And I would say that algorithms cannot determine if the visit or the service was medically necessary. One example would be we've seen visits where the chief complaint maybe is ear pain. And along with the management of the ear pain, we may see a random order for a urinalysis documented with no other information in the chart um, as to the reasoning uh, behind the why of, of ordering the urinalysis. So in this case, the medical necessity of the urinalysis is missing. And a coder would be able to see that and would query the provider to question the reasoning behind the urinalysis. And it, it could be that the urinalysis like order box was clicked on, but a urinalysis maybe really wasn't ordered um, or, or was done in unintentionally. Or it could be that there's an underlying reason why the provider felt a urinalysis was necessary, was necessary but he missed he or she missed that in in their documentation so having a coder's eyes on this being able to see that you know the coder it allows the coder to query the provider so either you know that order can be taken out or supporting documentation documentation added in to ensure that the medical necessity is there and that the the chart would withstand an audit also like the algorithm basically relies on the provider to check on the appropriate box. So we've seen so many examples where the provider will click on a high risk of morbidity for something as simple as a conjunctivitis. That would that doesn't mean that just because they click that box, that's a high risk patient. On the other hand, we've also seen where the patient comes in with chest pain, has an abnormal EKG, but the box checked is uncomplicated illness. So in both cases, just checking a box doesn't basically outline the true risk. Like the documentation has to speak to the risk of the patient of what they're managing. And I think in those examples that you gave, Vijay, the mm -hmm. first example, you know, that would be a case where like an acute uncomplicated illness could end up going out the door, you know, without a coder's eyes on that chart could end up going out the door as a level, as a, as a higher level, level mm -hmm. and not then be able to withstand an audit for that level. Mm -hmm. And at the same token that the case with the chest pain and um, an abnormal EKG, it's going to go out the Does door it? at a lower level when it, when it could have been a higher level and, and reimbursed it at a better rate. Okay, so it, and it sounds, you know, in summary for, you know, to that question, it sounds like, you know, if, if the provider is not completely accurate mm -hmm. with their box checking, the algorithm might be, you know, if it's written, it might be perfectly fine. The problem is if the boxes are not checked properly, you're really run a risk that it's going to be the wrong code. And, you know, what do you want your, what, what do you want your doctors and APPs doing? I mean, making sure that they check the right boxes and they can guess that the right code was 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 generated or, or, or would you prefer to have someone that's 
you know, a, a professional in this area looking at that. So that's, that's very interesting. In terms of why a, why a coder would still be necessary, um, in most cases, and this is one of the, the, the biggest things, is that in most cases an EHR, E&M algorithm calculator cannot read free text. And we see often that additional revenue generating codes are noted in the free text MDM sections of a chart. So a provider may note additional procedures within the free text as opposed to um, a separate maybe procedure section. And a coder will read that and pick up on these additional codes that could be added and prevent lost revenue. Um, opportunities. And then another example is sometimes we've seen the providers add risk statements within the free text MDM and something um, where you would see that the exam is normal um, and in the free text MDM the patient the provider would add that the patient is stable and can be discharged home and then goes on and checks the box of high risk. So there, the free text is telling us that the patient is stable enough to be discharged home, and this truly isn't a higher acuity case. It would either lead the, uh, the coder to query the provider on it or code it at an appropriate level. Without a coder's eyes, it would have gone out as a higher level. And the case can also be reversed mm -hmm. where there's a higher risk statement, but the box checked happens to be a low risk. So that's something that we come across very often. And I think too, because an E&M calculator, the algorithm um, doesn't consider the free text, there, there is a risk of incorrect documentation leading to what could be compliance issues. So sometimes templates are not updated or tailored to the particular patient in that particular encounter. And in a, a coder's eyes are going to see that. It could also be that there's conflicting information in the note. And again, um, that would be questioned on audit. So a coder has the opportunity to query the provider to say, you know, it could be conflicting laterality or it could be that, you know, the one section says the patient has a cough, the next section, the patient denies the cough. Right. So th things like that, a coder is going to pick up on and be able to query the provider and um, the provider would have the opportunity then to amend mm -hmm. the note to make sure that it would withstand Absolutely. an audit. Okay. All right, that's great. Uh, you know, I, I guess uh, the next question that comes up is, you know, what other ways does, uh, you know, does a practice benefit from, you know, from using a coder? I mean, you know, what, what other what other reasons, you know, would a practice, uh, you know, require a coder? So one of the biggest reasons for the ENM guideline changes was they wanted to move away from box checking, note bloating, because a lot of templates were built such that the providers would click boxes, the note would look like, like in terms of pages, it would be 15, 16 pages with information that wasn't always necessary for that particular visit. Now, again, if we go back to box checking, I think we're missing the entire purpose of that um, guideline change, which was to make the MDM more clinically intuitive um, and for the providers to document that th their thought process and focus on patient care, which is, their, um, which is what they're supposed to be doing. 
So when you hire a coder, the coders are trained to read through the chart, extract the information, use the guidelines and apply it to uh, come up with the most appropriate level of ENM for that visit. I would think too, another definite benefit, especially over the past three years to having a coder is that the guidelines currently, during the PHE, there were constant updates and guideline changes. At the same time, there was a huge spike in clinic volumes. So it became necessary for the providers, they needed to really focus on the patient care and not worry about keeping up with the guidelines, the current changes, um, when, you know, there were modifiers that suddenly needed to be added, things like that. All of that was really important for the coders to stay up on and ensure for the practices that, that the charts went out the door coded correctly to, to avoid, you know, things being sent back by the carriers and, and things having to be looked at a second time. So it's the job of a certified coder um, to, to stay up to date on all of those guidelines and changes. Also, I think we're seeing across the nation the shortage of providers. So do we really need a provider to be in the, doing the job of the coder and taking away time from patient care? Yeah. So, And I think one of the things that we also, um, I know that we've, we've talked to our clients about, that the patient charts are medical legal documents. And the coder can identify any documentation risks and provide appropriate feedback to the providers. So we've come across examples where information from one patient is in another patient's chart. You know, I know we had one where an x-ray for somebody, for instance, um, it could be in the wrong patient's chart. And the coder is going to notice this and, and be able to, you know, alert the providers mm -hmm. and, and clinical staff and, and so that they can get that issue corrected. Um, and without a, without a coder looking at that note, um, that, that could very possibly go unnoticed. Yeah. And then the ICD-10 and the CPT undergo changes each year. I think the number of codes in the ICD-10 data set is over 73,000. Mm -hmm. And then CPT must have at least more than 10,000 codes. So to expect a provider to keep up with these changes and choose the most appropriate code, I think is asking too much of them. Right. right. Well, those are all very salient points, uh, ladies. I, you know, I, I uh, in conclusion, you know, I think... Uh, you know, I, I guess a couple of thoughts come to mind, you know, um, you know, assuming that the EHR uh, algorithm is correct, um, you know, the, the basic premise is, is that, uh, you know, to derive the right code, you've got to rely on the provider checking all the right boxes, um, you know, and not only checking the right boxes, but then also making sure that they're free form text with you know, their thoughts and considerations, et cetera, support what those boxes check say. Um, so, I mean, in trying to expect a doctor and APP to consistently do that and get their final decisions uh, documented with the right boxes checked, that's a little bit of a reach. You know, I think the other point that you guys had made is that, you know, many times that there's, um, you know, there's conflicts within, you know, within the note. You know, algorithms are not going to pick up, uh, you know, those those conflicts. And 
you know, if you if you're audited, you know, you've got a potential compliance problem. Uh, you know, from a from a lost revenue standpoint, I think the other thing that that, that you guys mentioned was that. Uh, you know, many times there's procedures that are mentioned in that free form text. If they forgot to check the bots, you know, it's it's not going to get it's not going to get coded, and therefore it's not going to get billed, and and then, you know, it's a lost revenue opportunity for a service that was actually performed. So, uh, you know, and as as Vidya, I think just uh, just relayed, you know, in today's day and age of you know shortage of 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 doctors and and mid levels, I mean, do we really want them toiling over? Over over charts rather than having you know straight patient time mm-hmm. where you know they're treating the patient and then and then clearly documenting what they did and what they're you know and what they're recommending um, you know that's it's that the shortage is not projected to, to improve uh, you know anytime soon so uh, you know I, I guess the summary of this whole thing basically is is you know the minor cost that it that it is to pay to have your charts coded either by an in-house coder or a, or, or a service that's, you know, that's out of the house. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it minimizes the compliance risk and ensures that you're capturing all your revenue. So, uh, you know, really great session today, uh, Kelly and Vidya, appreciate your time here today. Um, I hope it was uh, useful information. Uh, as everyone knows, uh, we talked about before, uh, I can be reached at Tom at practfirst.com or at uh, cell phone number 716-861-1199. You, uh, if anyone has questions out there, please feel free to uh, uh, get them to me and uh, I will certainly get them to the experts, Kelly and Vidya, to uh, help us answer. Happy to help. So help thanks you. for your time, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank thanks. you for having us, Tom. Thanks for listening to Med Practice Made Perfect. 